So what I would like to do um, over the next two times in the evening, obviously next week we have Ashley who's going to preach, but um, this part of Acts, Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at it in two sections. And it's really a most amazing portion, talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the early church and how that affected uh, the whole church for all of its journey. And so can we just read together from verse um, 1 in Acts chapter 2? I think I'm reading from the NIV. If I'm not, I apologize, but I think this is the NIV. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. And now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Notice that it's not just a spiritual language. They understood the language. It was God gave this incredible gift, and they understood in their own language what the disciples were saying. And they were astonished and amazed, saying, Are not those who are speaking Galileans? These are fishermen. These are ordinary people. How do they know all these different languages? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does that mean? But others mocked, saying, they are filled with new wine. Isn't this an amazing picture of what God does when He pours out His Spirit? And I have been in meetings where people have spoken in a, a kind of a prophetic language and a tongue, and people have understood in the room who are from another nation have understood what they've said. So this is, this is great when this happens. And so it is a spiritual language, but God can also do an amazing thing to pour out His Spirit in a way that the extraordinary gifts that happen. In fact, some of the um, missionaries of old used to believe that when God wanted to send you to, on mission somewhere, He would give you the language that you needed to go to that place. That was the expectation. And that's how they went out on mission, believing that God would help them to understand the language of the place they were going to. And so here we have in these verses hundreds of years after the prophecy of Joel, uh, these, Peter gets up and interprets the events of Pentecost as a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, which we've spoken about before. And here, ever since this time, the church has been moving into a new dimension, a new way of living received as the promise of the Father to the church. And this is the glorious inheritance that we have as God's people. But what I want to speak about is a sort of introduction to the next two times. It's also sad to recognize at the same time that this amazing experience of receiving the empowering grace of God, that's really what it is, the empowering grace of God to be witnesses, to be those that are passionate. This incredible gift has so divided the church instead of unifying the church. And I want to speak a little bit about that tonight. Um, my personal conviction is that the devil has done that to cause many to think that actually the various passages they read in Acts must be normative for everybody and must be normative practice for everybody. And, as a, as a ba and, and they use various texts to prove their point or their point of view rather than seeing the overall picture of what God does 
and the picture of Father's heart towards us through the entire Scripture. And that's why we like to preach expositionally. We just pre preach what the text says. Too often we try and put our framework onto the text, and then all of the text needs to conform to what we think is the basic view of what God is trying to say. Do you get what I'm saying? Rather than just letting the texts speak. And there are various texts through Acts that all speak about the Holy Spirit. And you'll see He does amazing things in very different ways. He doesn't always do the same thing. And that's the point. God is very interested in bringing people into His family. And He uses different experiences and forms to touch people's lives with His grace and with His love. And so He doesn't seem to be particularly interested in the order that people experience things. Um, some people encounter His saving power and realize the sufficiency of the cross. Some people get baptized and then seem to pray the prayer. Some people get the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then realize what's happened to them. There are ma many ways that God brings people into His kingdom. And so I want to just look at some of the, since the 18th and 19th century, people have been fighting about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's so unnecessary. And as we come from many different backgrounds and many different churches, and some of us from no church background, I thought it would be good just to briefly have a look at the way that people have understood the baptism of the Holy Spirit in order that we can love each other and respect each other's positions and grow together in unity. All right? And so that's what I want to do, is, and I will look at Acts chapter 2 as well. And um, God wants all of us to be equipped to understand and the love that He has for us and His people and the love that He has for His kingdom so that it can transform us and transform churches and communities. That's really what He's interested in, is that St. Albans and the surrounding areas are transformed by the love of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And that's really what we want to see through as we journey through Acts together. So he has a very brief historical view on baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, and like I said, unfortunately, this most important and wonderful experience for any Christian at the same time has unfortunately become a source of controversy and division. And mainly Christians have been divided about three things since the 17th and the 18th century. First of all, when the baptism of the Spirit takes place. Secondly, what is the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit? And thirdly, the process that you go through to receive the experience of baptism. And I think... One of the major causes of this is our Western kind of Greek thinking that likes to order things and put things in little boxes, neat and tidy, so that we can understand things. We want to box God. We want to make sure that God fits our particular doctrinal position. And of course, the problem is that God is much greater than any of our doctrines and any of our ways of understanding Him. He is infinitely wise in every way. And so perhaps you've come from a Catholic background. Perhaps you've come from an evangelical or Reformed background, Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist, Holiness Movement, Pentecostal. Maybe you've been part of the Restoration Movement of the last 50 years where churches have become more independent and are uh, moving into an apostolic understanding of the Scripture. You might come from no church background. My point is, is God is much greater than any of those traditions. And he can do anything that he wants to. And we can't ever box him into our particular view of what we think he should be doing because of our background or our cultural church cu culture. And so all of those traditions can be divided into four basic systems with regard to, to baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it's very important that we understand what they are, particularly as we're trying to work out how we respond to the Holy Spirit, but also so that we can understand other people, other believers, and respect them and work together towards unity and a unifying perspective. The first perspective is this. It's of infant baptism. 
So traditions like Catholicism, the Orthodox Church, Anglican churches, Episcopal churches, and Lutherans believe that you are baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment that you receive infant baptism, and that there's a renewed filling or stirring of the Holy Spirit when you get confirmed again at age 13 or 14 or whatever it is. And that's how those traditions view the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are other traditions that view the baptism of the Holy Spirit happening at conversion. So, for example, traditions like evangelicals, the Reformed tradition, Baptists, and some Methodist groups also believe that you are baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment that you get saved, and that subsequent to that you can have many other infillings of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, people have described it like being refilled if you're tank is leaking, I like to think it more like a sailing ship, that you need the, the wind in the sails all the time if you're going to sail your life. And we need the Holy Spirit all the time to be filling the sails of our lives so that we can move together with Him as we move forward. So infant baptism is one position. Position two is at conversion. Thirdly, there are other groups called holy, the holiness movements, particularly in America, like the Church of God or the Nazarenes, and others that believe that you are, when you are born again, you receive the Spirit, Spirit, you are filled with the Spirit, you are sealed by the Spirit, but they look for a second work of grace, that's what they call it, to sanctify you, to make you more and more like Jesus, and that's what they look to. They look to a second work of grace, that's what they call it. So you're baptized, but you expect a second work of grace that God would transform you into the perfection of Jesus and that you overcome your flesh and the nature, earth, the, the fleshly nature, and you are empowered as a Christian. And that's a second work of grace, according to holiness traditions. Uh, fourthly, Pentecostals. Pentecostals also believe that you receive the Holy Spirit after conversion, um, and there's some subgroups in Pentecostalism, what I, I won't, it gets too complicated, but let me just say this. They also believe that when you are born again, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience that they say you must seek after and you must desire, and it happens subsequent to conversion, yeah? So you get born again, sealed by the Holy Spirit, you have assurance of salvation, but you must seek after the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that conversion and baptism in the Holy Spirit is not a simultaneous experience. You have to desire it, you have to look for it, you have to, and then God does it. Okay, so that's the Pentecostal tradition. And um, I'm just painting the picture, and we're going to go from here, all right? And so... What is the evidence then of baptism in the Holy Spirit? And again, people have disagreed. And when we begin to think about the initial experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for Pentecostals and most Protestant charismatic traditions and some Roman Catholic charismatics, <clears throat> they would say speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's how you know you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You start to speak in tongues. Um, most evangelical dominations, on the ha other hand, tend to emphasize the fruit of the Spirit, especially faith, hope, love, as evidence in your life that you have been baptized, you have been renewed, and the evidence of that, the power of the Spirit in your life, is that you love people, and you are kind, and you are gentle, and you once were angry, and you're no longer angry, and you can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit through your life. That's the evidence of the baptism. There's something changed, and everyone can see that you've changed. All right, so that's the evangelical tradition. And in our church, we um, talk about the Word 
and the Spirit. Yes, we want both of those. And Artie Kendall, a dear friend of ours who is still alive in his 80s, hasn't been here for many years now, but he says this, Word people emphasize the fruit of the Spirit, and Spirit people emphasize the gifts of the Spirit. We need both the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit, and we need both equally and urgently. Amen? I love that. Come on. The gifts fully. The healing, prophecy, miraculous things. We need that, absolutely. And we also need the fruit of the Spirit as evidenced of the inward work that God is doing in our lives that everybody can see. The fruit of the Spirit, and we need both of those, the Word and the, 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 word and the Spirit equally and urgently. And so I've spoken a little around the holiness groups who emphasize the, the evidence of that second work of grace, that you are perfected in love, you have the power to resist temptation, and you have an increased power to serve and both God and man. And so as we journey through the book of Acts together, I really hope that we are going to learn to love and know the Holy Spirit more intimately as we journey through together. And I must say up front that my, our position in this church is not going to be a Catholic viewpoint or a holiness perspective of baptism, but rather our view is, uh, focuses on the evangelical perspective, the Pentecostal perspective, a Protestant charismatic perspective of what happens when you are baptized, all right, in the Holy Spirit. And my belief is that there's truth in each of these perspectives, but as, as I've said before, each of those tries to fit the whole of the Scripture to their particular belief system rather than letting the Scripture speak to us in many different ways. And uh, that's what we need to bear in mind wherever we read the Scripture, that we just take the Scripture for what it is and let it speak. And God does whatever He wants, and He does it in different ways at different times, in different places, according to what is needed. Isn't that wonderful that God can do that? And so... What is most important in all of this is what happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2 and just look briefly at these verses, and then I'm going to finish the second half of it later. I love the book of Acts, particularly because it speaks so clearly about being empowered by the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the first great outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurs here, but we will see that throughout the book of Acts, there are many other outpourings of the Holy Spirit where God does incredible things. Several of those are in the book of Acts, and some of them are recorded elsewhere. And God does amazing things when He pours out His Spirit. And people are saved and healed and delivered and challenged and encouraged, and we want all of those things in the church, surely. And do you notice that um, here in Acts chapter 2, though, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that is tangible. It is measurable. It's something that you physically experience in your body. There were tongues of fire. There was a mighty rushing wind. They heard it. They saw it. And so much so that they said, what on earth is happening here? We hear people speaking in our own languages. This is unusual. They, they experienced it. It wasn't just some kind of like spiritual experience where they were mystically lifted into the third heaven. No, this was practical. It was in the room. Something was happening in the room, and it affected them physically, and they knew it was happening to them. All right? Sorry, I'm too loud. So they were aware. Tongues of fire, rushing wind. They asked, what's going on? 
And do you notice also that this group of believers in Jesus, but there's a f- they are believers in Jesus, but there's a further experience that they receive from the Holy Spirit. They're already saved. They already know Jesus. They're already together in the room praying and worshiping. They already have that, and this is another experience that comes upon them in this incredible way, physically, that they feel and they hear, and it's demonstrated amongst them in a practical, practical way. The first thing I want to point you to is this. The first thing that is a consequence of the Holy Spirit being poured out is that outsiders are surprised. Do you notice that? It says in uh, verse 5 to 13, there's a crowd that gathers And they gather because of this extraordinary thing that is happening. So let me put it to you like this. It says there were a number of Jewish people gathered together. Why were they gathered together? Because they were celebrating Pentecost, where we get the name from, Pentecost. What was Pentecost? Well, Pentecost was actually a celebration of the law, the giving of the law to the people of Israel. It was a celebration of that. Pentecost is the 50th day after the Passover festival. And at, the, at this time, farmers also brought the first fruit of their crops. They brought it to God in the temple and offered prayer to say thank you for a good crop and also to pray that the rest of the crop would be brought in successfully. But obviously, Pentecost also reminded them of the Passover. So it was much more than just an agricultural um, celebration. It reminded them of the great story of the Exodus, when God fulfilled His promise to Abraham and rescued His people from Egypt. The Passover lambs were sacrificed, and the firstborn of each family was saved as the angel of death passed over their houses. And if you remember the story, immediately after that, the Israelites leave, and they begin their journey through the Red Sea into the Sinai Desert. And 50 days after Passover... They come to Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up the mountain, and he gets the law from God. And he comes back down, 50 days. That's what they were celebrating. They were celebrating the law being given to God's people. And so for Luke, there's this powerful picture of the apostles being filled on that very day, being filled with the empowering grace of the law. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the empowering grace to help you to obey the law. And that's what, that, that's what Luke is saying to us. He's saying this is an incredible picture that actually Moses went up the mountain and came back down with the law. Jesus went up into heaven and what has come back down to us is the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life, to live the law from the inside out, not on tablets of stone, but written on the flesh of your heart. Come on. And so this is what they were celebrating. And so for them, People, all the Jews gathered to celebrate Passover, who were meant to be the people of God, and in reality had a religious experience of God. They come into this room where people are personally experiencing God in the most dramatic way. They're speaking in tongues. There's things happening. There's a rushing wind. There's fire. And they're like, what is this? And it is the presence of God come down, and they, some of them mock and say, well, these people are just drunk. And then Peter gets up. Second thing that happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out is great preaching happens. 
Great preaching happens. Empowered, graceful preaching happens. And we're going to look at this later. But Acts 2, verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all those who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's the only third hour of the day. But this is what was said through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be so, declares the Lord. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants, both feel, um, and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my law uh, uh, about my spirit. Ladies, it's equal under God. Yes, no hierarchy. Don't worry about it. We get treated equally in the kingdom, <laughs> men and women, young and old, all flesh. God pours His Spirit out, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and the sides on the earth below, blood and fire and smoke, and the sun will be turned to darkness. He's, he's quoting Joel, and um, et cetera, et cetera. On the great and magnificent day of the Lord. I love that. Isn't that wonderful? The great and magnificent day, and will come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? And so, the tongues are not the main thing. The preaching is the main thing. And the preaching only starts in verse 14. And Peter begins to speak under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's not a well-prepared sermon. He hasn't got any time. He has no idea what he's going to say. He just starts speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And boom, 3,000 people get saved. And so when we look at the whole of the sermon we will see that the real work of the Holy Spirit comes and it comes so that there's preaching happening like on the day of Pentecost. And that's very direct. Peter addresses them personally. It's not teaching. It's not a lecture. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's prophetic. It has impact. It changes people's lives. It has power to change. And that's what Peter, how Peter preaches. And our, it's our desire that we would learn to preach like that. The best preaching is that which gets people to think about their lives and change. And if it doesn't, then preaching is simply a detached, unrelatable lecture. And we don't want that at all. We want the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not the only thing that happens when the Holy Spirit is, pointed, is poured out, absolutely. But it is the, one of the most important things. Holy Spirit-empowered preaching. Do you want to notice, secondly, what is not in the sermon before we look at what is in the sermon later? What is not in the sermon? Do you notice it's not a general sermon about politics or current affairs? Peter doesn't get up and complain about the Romans, that they're being impressing the people. He doesn't get up and complain about taxes, that they are being overtaxed. He doesn't get up and complain about a whole lot of things that he could have. The Jews have been fighting and longing to be set free for centuries. He could have got up and sp spoke about all those things. What does he get up and speak about? He speaks about Jesus. He says, this is the main thing. Let me speak to you about Jesus. He appeals immediately for this living act of faith in the Lord Jesus, and his words cut them to their heart, and they say, what must we do to be saved? We want to change. Help us. How do we get saved? And surely that what is, that's what church is. Surely that's what church is, a community of saved people amongst whom God acts in power through the preaching of His Word, through worship, through prayer, and the Holy Spirit, boom, transforming people. So like I said, it's not the only way that the Holy Spirit is shown in power, but I would say it is the one that generally arises whenever the Spirit is poured out in power. The preaching is transformed, and it is powerful. And when the preaching is not, is not powerful and transformed, people start to look for other things. The worship must be great. 
we must have all these signs and wonders in every meeting. No. When the preaching is powerful, it transforms us from the inside, and we are empowered to do all the other stuff, and we don't have to get worried about all the other things that we, 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 we want, want to see. God pours himself out, and he does that as we seek him with all of our hearts. Let there be powerful preaching. Come on. And so we don't need to turn to other substitutes and look for the other big thing we can, that's going to be imparted to us. We just need to preach powerfully and trust God by the power of the Spirit. That's what Peter did. He preached Jesus. And I'm fully convinced that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which it generally leads to transformed preaching, and the preaching must focus on Jesus as our Savior from sin. And that is what empowers the church on an ongoing way that people in the pews are empowered from the inside out by the power of the Spirit as the Word of God transforms them. And then they become ministers and they pray for the sick and they see healing. And it's not about the person at the front. It's about all of God's people doing what they are called to do by the power of the Spirit, empowered by grace. And so in summary then, and I'm finished we're going to look at the second half of Peter's message next time. But the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is such a blessing, an empowerment to the church, an empowerment for the church. One of the most important things that we can experience as a believer. Unfortunately, it has divided the church. And I want to appeal to you, whatever your background, whatever your tradition, or even if you have no tradition, God is bigger than you, your tradition. And God wants all of us to experience more of the Holy Spirit and to know Him and love Him more and more deeply. And I want to encourage you as we go through the book of Acts to desire more of the Holy Spirit, to want in your own life to experience more of the Holy Spirit, to experience the baptism of the Spirit with all of your heart, in fillings, however you want to describe it, with all of your heart. And I am convinced that as we do that, amazing things will happen when God pours Himself out upon His people. And we see in this instance that crowds are drawn, both believers and unbelievers. They are cut to the heart. Parade, powerful and courageous preaching is one of the things that happens when Jesus is lifted up. People are saved, and then signs and wonders follow. And the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit are evidenced in every person's life. Surely we want all of that. Amen? That's what we want. And so I believe uh, that rather than dividing us, it's a thing that we should, as a church, should desire and seek with all of our hearts. And so let me encourage you all to do that as we continue our journey together through Acts. That God would come and move in power amongst us and empower us and transform us, each one of us, that we can see his kingdom come. As it is in heaven, on earth, right here amongst us. Amen.